Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for chronoskimming classics, modern marvels, and verse X, where we take a look at two titles released the same week with something in common but plenty of differences, and take a look at how they work together to shape or how they work at odds to sort of imbalance the X line and how we feel about those changes. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Josh, you can find me on Twitter at AsleepAtTheWheel, W-E-I-L, or or at FL Politician, that's E O L Y. Or you could just call me Daddy Righteous. Ooh. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I'm Jonah. If you want to follow me looking down on people with my hot mouth, you follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P E A K. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike those hot mouths that Solomon just left in his penthouse. Ooh. So, okay. That tells us one of the books we're taking a look at today, but let's take a quick look at the library that we're going to consider in today's Verse X. We're going to kick things off with Immortal X-Men number six, written by Kieran Gillen, pornographically illustrated in exquisite, luxurious detail up and down my damn body by Lucas Vernick, colors by David Curiel, letters by the incredible Clayton Cowles, who really sets the standard for his industry, and of course, Tom Muller and Jay Bowen on design. And as indicated by Jonah's mention of the incredibly queer Solemn, we're also going to be taking a look at Wolverine number 24. I can't believe it's finally gotten to 24. Written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Federico Vincenti, color by the, at this point, you know, Marvel mainstay for 30 years, Frank D'Armada, with letters by VC's Corey Pettit, a guy who makes the rounds through the X-Book like nobody's business. And once again, Tom Muller and Jay Bowen on the hyper-designed look of the X-Line. And it's really interesting because the title of the issue of Wolverine is Hell to Pay. And the title of the Immortal X-Men issue is Hell fire is an eternal flame. And I think it's really an interesting perspective that, I mean, of course, Wolverine's dealing with hell and Sebastian Shaw is, you know, daddy hellfire who Lucas, Lucas Vernick. What the fuck are you doing, dude? He's so hot. I can't get over it. And also like just that panel where his clothes are burning off. So hot. I am so mad at how hot he is because he's so awful, but he's so hot. And like, I don't think I really thought he was hot before like I get that he had daddy vibes and like you could probably assume that he was really now he stacked daddy vibes there really is a difference and it was starkly put into contrast today and it's not just Vernick it's also the way Gillen writes him like I do feel like he is tragically heterosexual but under the pen of a queer is there person, any other kind of heterosexual there truly is not but under the pen of a queer person like he becomes somebody that the gays can have fun with in this particular context. I feel like reading these two issues together, Wolverine and Immortal X-Men, really helped me to finally see exactly where Judgment Day is going, what we're doing here. And I, I am happy to, if this ends where I think it's going to end, which which is just a full, like, oversized 30-page final issue that is a roofie-off between Solomon and Eros, then it will all have been worth it. I really, if they can just take each other out, I'm in for the ride. 
And I think it's really important that so many of the characters in this are, um, you know, scummy, right? Because this is kind of an event about the things that lie in the pit of your heart, the things that you don't want to deal with. And without real, real gross people who are like, I'm <laughs> not submitting to judgment, I know better. It's kind of almost difficult to see the hero's stake in things. And that both books use hell and fire and burning sins as points of contention is really interesting. I want to take a moment to consider how Sebastian Shaw and Wolverine are both really known for their parts in Phoenix Saga. Please, I, I know that a thousand percent Wolverine is known for a trillion other things, but it's that Logan in the sewers shit that so many people iconically remember. And it's so interesting the ways that these two stories are so dramatically different for these two characters that are, and not just by their big furry chests, kind of like better and worse versions of each other. I feel like you can make a case for if Wolverine had remained sort of like stately British Canada man. He would be a little bit closer to a Sebastian. He might have even had a seat in the Hellfire Club. And the portrayal of judgments in these two books was just so different. I would love to get everybody's sort of opinion on that current of fire and damnation and that sense of judgment for the men involved. Well, there's three types of characters that we're seeing throughout Judgment Day. We have those that think they are good, that think they're doing enough good and are surprised to find out they're not. We have those that don't think they're doing enough good and are surprised to find out that they are. And we have those that know that they're not. Know that they're a thumbs down and are like, this ain't even a fucking thing because there's no way in hell I'm getting a thumbs up here. And interestingly enough in this, even though we don't tend to think of Sean Wolverine as being similar, they are both, they both walk out of the Captain America got a thumbs down. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, this isn't even a fucking game I'm playing. Like, we know exactly where I am on this. And that puts them in a very interesting perspective in terms of they have a lot to do. They're both working and moving forward as if there is a tomorrow, but not trying to get a thumbs up. Like that ship sailed. I mean, it's funny because I think I agree with you in that the characters behave that way and have that motivation. And I think we as readers who follow, I'm really talking about Wolverine here, but when you follow Wolverine over a long period of time, you can't help but kind of agree with him but Marvel has a real stake in ultimately Wolverine getting the thumbs up because he is such an iconic hero for their line and even if we love to flirt with Logan as the anti-hero and the bad boy we always kind of have to come back to the heart of gold because it's Marvel so there is this way in which it tests me a little bit because my Wolverine absolutely and like he's written on the page this way like he absolutely is like I should probably get the thumbs down because I'm a fucking murderer and like yeah I've tried to do a lot of good to balance things out but I have killed too many people not to face judgment but at the end of the day unless we are going to do another drastic the death of Wolverine storyline he's more or less getting a pass and we also know that so it's a weird kind of precarious balance and god fucking damn it Ben Percy you are winning me over and I will to my dying breath say that none of this in X-Force and Wolverine is really what I want but he gets the character and he's writing a version of him that I feel like I respect more than what 90% of people white Wolverine write Wolverine as. No, Wolverine's white. You got that right. <laughs> Very. So I hear what everybody is saying, but I think this test is very precarious because I feel like everybody thinks it's like, well, I've done plenty of bad things and I won't get the thumbs up. But you look at characters and you're and some characters and you're like, eh, but like, how did they get a thumbs up or why did they get a thumbs down? 
down. I don't know if it's all necessarily accumulation of good and bad, because I think there's way too much nuance in is something objectively good or is something objectively bad, where the characters keep thinking, well, I'm going to get a thumbs down, so what's the point? But that's not exactly it, because they're given a very specific kind of test. I mean, we look at Exodus. Exodus got a thumbs up. doesn't appear to be about good or bad. It appears to be more about conviction and lack of cynicism, I, I feel like, as a through line across the characters. And like meeting that conviction. Do you live up to your conviction? Do you believe you've done well? Did you publish the zine? There is a certain fiduciary stakes that Wolverine does have to get. Certain good positive things because he is so popular and he is so vital to comic success in terms of whatever you put him in and you, you know his popularity. It's going to sell regardless of if it's perceived well or not. But I do find almost all, everybody here is in agreement of Wolverine's getting a thumbs up. We're just going to have to figure out how, we, how we're getting there. I do think the journey to getting that thumbs up can be interesting. And the same could be said for Solemn. Because you look at Solemn and you're like, this being that's full of only lust, does his, does, does his conviction deserve a thumbs up or a thumbs down? And I find that part fascinating as well. And I, I think that I think that his journey as well will be really interesting and the two of them together will make a very interesting dynamic. I'm very excited to see how that will shake out. See, I, I'm not as convinced that Wolverine has to get a thumbs up and I think that Gillen did a really good job by opening judgment with Captain America getting a thumbs down to let us know that um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be as chalk as you think it is. And I definitely get that because I, and I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't think Cyclops should have gotten a thumbs up just like period. I'm all for Cyclops, but the whole way it was done, that's just not, I don't know. I don't think Cyclops feels Cyclops has done the best job. So I'm, I'm just not sure the rubric we're using here, but I did think that there were some really well-placed judgments that helped me to understand that there is a little bit more understanding of these characters than I'd feared was going on. I feel like Destiny, who's literally like, you know, yay, kill more humans, which I get, you know, I feel though one of the things that we sort of leave out when we say that Destiny and Mystique are like, yes, let's kill humans. They're also sort of like, let's kill human babies so they can't grow up to be mutant killers. So when we champion that they're like, yay, let's kill the humans, we're championing that they want to murder base. Well, hold on. Destiny is, I don't care if we kill humans. Mystique is the one who, like, literally her vote changes based on if more humans will die. Well, and to that end, that Raven is less likely to vote for the plan if it's less likely to kill humans yeah. makes me makes even me pause. I love her, however. You're absolutely right. I don't question your reminding me of that point. That does sort of bring me to a question about Destiny. I don't think, for as cool as they're trying to make her, the ex-office as a whole has a real singular vision of Destiny at this point, and I sometimes find it a little bit hard to follow who they're trying to portray Irene as. But something I appreciate is Gillen seems to head-on confront that by making Irene that complicated to understand, even from her own narrative perspective. I think you're spot on. This isn't a surprise. This is something we see with characters that get a big kick in popularity for whatever reason. People realize they're cool. It's been a while since we've seen them. They become an interesting plot insert that then we all start caring about. It really becomes, okay, now for the creative team and the editorial office, it's a, we, we have this commodity on our hands. We have this thing that we can use in a lot of different ways. And for particular writers, it becomes, 
this. I could really write something interesting with this character. And for other writers, it becomes I've been assigned using this character in a story that I'm doing that I kind of was not going to make them the main focus. And all of these different factors end up attaching themselves to this person. And this is the time in which they get a little muddied and we have to do the work of deciding for ourselves individually how we're going to view them and how we're going to put together a vision of them and then how we're going to do the work of reconciling who they come out to be when the period of hype ends and they kind of settle a little bit into the character that they're going to be more long term. I think we're really right in the middle of it with Destiny and there really are times where it does seem like she is cold hearted and really almost does delight in the death of like human children and there are other times where it seems like I'm taking care of mutants first. I don't relish the death of humans but if it happens I have to put my people first which isn't as really horrifying as like good death of babies see now what i read in on gillen's internal conflict with destiny is more that omniscience is boring you know characters that can't lose or know everything are not incredibly exciting and oftentimes more difficult to write i mean it's it's a testament to how they use iska that one they use her infrequently and two that they have to try to find these clever ways of her being involved in order to continue to make it compelling and interesting when you know that she's going to win every time if we were just reading an Iska the Unbeaten monthly book where she's the protagonist and she's going up against someone every time but she can't be beaten and so she always wins, it would be pretty boring and uneventful. So Destiny being kind of too hyped up or powered in terms of knowing everything, seeing everything, always being able to play that move is something that would get too boring too quickly and so I feel like Killen, uh, Killen, I feel like Kieran Gillen was trying to uh, swerve around that a little with the more inner conflict he's building into her. So to slightly interact what you're talking about, Josh, I do think that having characters that seem unbeatable can lead to very tricky storytelling where you need to place them in scenarios that make it seem like they could be challenged when you already know what the result is going to be. And you have to find a way to make that interesting. The the most popular thing I think that got that well and right was One Punch Man, where you have this hero that's virtually unbeatable, uh, that virtually can't lose, but you create these six successful storytelling around that and around this character and how do you make that interesting and I, I think that the team at Marvel have that challenge with a character like Destiny you know maybe Moira wasn't completely wrong with no more precogs and no more clairvoyant people because everything becomes so tricky and you see that a lot with the way that uh, you see Irene's powers be talked about where she often just talks about everything here is probability everything is subject to change no, nothing is set in stone just because I can see it doesn't mean it's going to happen and I think that's them trying to make it a little more interesting without saying, well, Destiny knows what's going to happen. Destiny can just win because she she can just lead us down the path that will lead us to the vision she saw correctly. Whereas having it be everything is up to probability, nothing is set in stone. I can't control the future. I only see the possibilities if the dice are rolled this specific way. I think that makes her a little bit more interesting in terms of how do you utilize her power set without it coming across as, well, we have to keep Destiny or we have to keep Eska. We have to keep Blindfold out of 
commissioner out of this narrative and out of this story because it doesn't make sense because then you could just say, well, they can do this. Speaking of blindfold, I can't help but notice that Immortal X-Men ends with a surprise appearance. Now, there's tons more to dig into about the amazing events of Immortal X-Men, but throughout the story, we get the narrative of Sebastian Shaw's, I guess, toxic alpha dad. Who saw that coming? And Sebastian Shaw himself, you know, being like, I hate you, daddy. And great. But the end of the issue closes with an appearance by none other than Mother Righteous from the pages of Legion of X. And I would love to get your guys' opinion on the interplay between Kieran Gillen and Cy Spurrier here, sort of creating a shared narrative between Sebastian Shaw and David Holler, two characters that I don't know that I in like inherently mix together. Well, I mean, if we're looking at commonalities between them, I mean, they are two characters that are incredibly powerful, but also feel like they have to be managed. They feel like the powers that be in the those around them are constantly trying to manage them. And so usurping that, you know, getting a cheat code from outside of that circle of power would be equally appealing to both. And, you know, I love that you put it that way about having them on the team, because it's almost like you have to negotiate their involvement by virtue of like a predetermined set of standards and rules by which they're allowed to abide. Sebastian Shaw doesn't get to just be here, Sebastian Shaw, in order to be part of this Sebastian Shaw is on a leash. Legion doesn't just get to be here. Legion's on a leash. Whenever they volunteer to do anything, both of them have to be like, yes, I'll bring babysitters. Like, you can send this person along to watch me, even if they are actually trying to do good. Everybody has to keep an eye on Shaw. Everybody sleeps with one eye open. He fucking killed Kitty Pride, And then they had to have a whole plan to take revenge and, like, make sure that he understood that he was on a leash and they were out thinking, which was a great moment. David has historically been one of those characters because his powers and his state of being are so volatile but this has really been an era about maybe the hope that things could be different for him and that he has actually healed and he has found his own minders in such a way that like Charles doesn't need to be such an asshole and when David is trying to do good things and help his people and goes everywhere with his two like blow me up if I twitch friends like maybe Charles could just show him some love and support for the things that he is doing rather than constantly regarding him as something that needs to be managed like he's managing himself Shaw really at all times is saying like if you don't manage me I will do whatever the fuck I want David and Shaw are uh, which sounds like uh, you know their own cop show David and Shaw they're not characters I think people would put together and even if someone was like create an unlikely duo I really think they'd be like low wrong pairings that people would think oh yeah you could put them together I don't know if there's a lot in common between the two you look at their power sets and they're very different you look at you know what their ideals are and how they act and conduct themselves which are very different you can say that maybe because of having withholding fathers that they are the way they are and maybe there is a foil between the two but I don't know that's enough of this distinction to be like yeah they're a pair they're a really good mirror of one another and the two different paths of how you know withholding affection and love from a father figure can put people down certain paths I don't know if there's enough commonality for me personally but I am 
fascinated to see how Mother Righteous will play into everything. I do think that the this character being the bridge makes sense. I feel like she's like the host of the show, Let's Make a Deal, because she always just seems like she's going on about making deals, promises with people. I totally see that. She's definitely Wayne Brady. The Wayne Brady of the Marvelverse, which is hysterical. Seeing this story and my three fellow readers who have read X-Men comics for much longer and know more, is this the one of the first times of delving into the specific like childhood past of Shaw that we've seen before? Have like this has this been touched before by a writer? I think if it with anybody, it would have been either Gillen or Asmus in the revolution post schism. There was a four issue Hellfire Club mini series that I actually just found out existed a couple days ago and is not uh, was never made available in trade. Um, we've covered it on the show here and there. It's not particularly great. Yeah, I but there there's only so many spots that Shaw has been given. And I feel like it's probably one of those things where in dialogue he has been like, my father never gave me anything and I made my own millions. And But it was something that none of us ever cared about because A, who the fuck cares about Shaw? And B, like it wasn't meant to be a plot point. And seriously, like the black, like there's one fucking issue of Exodus backstory that we keep going back to, that one issue of, right. uh, of the Black Knight one shot by Ben Robb. And I joked that, you know, Kieran Gill went into the Marvel office and asked for all of the backstory on Exodus and they handed him that one thing. That feels more and more true because he keeps going back to the well of that He's getting a lot issue. of mileage out of that. So much. So much. Listen, I, I get that. You, you you get the bang for your buck and you you, you use what you get. And But so I find that fascinating. I think I maybe wish there's a different story direction for Shaw. I think that we could have done something a little more interesting with the, if we're giving the time to talk about Shaw's backstory and go into his childhood and talk about different moments of him in the Hellfire Club, I really think that there maybe could have been more interesting things that could have been done there. We had mentioned this in in preview last month, like, oh God, is Gillen's going to make us like Shaw? And I'm really glad that he just went with, you know, we'll give him a little bit of childhood trauma because everything fucking comes from childhood trauma. But really, if we're going to make you like him, we're just going to make him a sexy daddy. We're not going to, you know, recontextualize or make you see from his perspective or, or justify things he's done because that's not super necessary. We don't have to do that for every character. I guess for Shaw, Shaw's purpose on here, which has always been pretty clear, is that Shaw and the Quiet Council is, he's incredibly powerful, and having him in the circle is going to always make him an internal threat. But the thing you can rely on is the fact that Shaw wants to ultimately control Krakoa. He is always going to be trying to position himself to eventually control Krakoa, which means that he is a huge asset for you for any exterior your threats that are going to try to destroy or take over Krakoa because he sure as shit ain't gonna let that happen because he's incredibly selfish it's all about him and he wants Krakoa so that is the one thing that they can count on and use him as an asset and we saw it when he stepped into the fire literally for Exodus in this issue we saw it in Duggan's last Marauders in Space issue and I feel like we saw it once early on in like the um, beginnings of the post Hoxpox era in the dawn of X as well where yeah like he he is powerful he is on the team and if he thinks it threatens his long game he will throw down for you I'm also really interested in how this contrasts with Marauders number three because I have no love for Sebastian Shaw I could have none but I could have infinitely less love for Shinobi Shaw because uh I don't care I just uh, don't Shinobi care Shinobi Leland I think you mean ooh so hot ooh so hot Thank you. Thank you for reminding me about Shaw's eternal shame. Um, not that it is 
shameful, but that that's how Shaw would see it. That's awesome. Uh, well, but it was really funny it. how that was presented as like, oh, it turns out we both fucked your mother and, you know, we just didn't really think about it, but you are actually his kid. And I ultimately am excited to see that there's a lot more focus on the agency of some of these characters. I might not care about them, but I'm happier to see Shaw have an active role than be repeatedly targeted. It seems like he was always just lurking in the shadows doing some sort of bad trickery and would get caught and that was that. But what I really needed to see was Sebastian Shaw, like you guys are saying, in the shit and then I kind of need to see him getting shit on. It's kind of like it's always standing in Philadelphia. It's only good because they suffer. Sebastian Shaw absolutely works as an it's always sunny in Philadelphia character. And I think that like, I I mean this very seriously. Because of the implication. (laughs) Celine writes a musical at somebody. I can't, I can't. Oh my God, she writes the Black Queen cometh. Okay, so but who is it at? Who is this versus? Who are we and doing it versus? Main thing, Sebastian Shaw generally sucks. And I really like that we were allowed to appreciate his sucktitude because it directly contrasts with something else that I have a little bit more trouble with. There's sort of no world in which Solemn isn't like actually a sexual predator. And I feel like Solemn is basically what they always thought Dokken would be, but then everybody got kind of schmoopy about him. And I think one of the things that makes Dokken so cool is that he's just this side of stupid like he's just so close to too much they pull back at exactly the right moments it's a masterful skill to understand the exaggerative nature of parody and to use it properly in a dramatic storytelling fashion it's really a you know a testament to the team's incredible ability to navigate that but there's times where i'm like eye roll everything solemn says is an eye roll okay but on this guy i believe it and i don't want to like solemn i don't ultimately want to see him appear more i need him to be unlikably likable. So I would love to get your guys' opinion on how consistently Ben Percy has been able to return to the Well of Solemn and how you guys feel about Solemn's place in this, essentially, because let's throw in Life and Death of Wolverine, 34 issues of Wolverine that we've gotten so far. It's hard. Part of it in this issue was the art. I have so many mixed feelings about the art in Wolverine 24 by Vicentini because his paneling and his action scenes are incredibly dynamic. There's so much great fluid movement and he choreographs all of the fighting so well. And his characters are reminiscent. There's a style that is clearly influenced by Umberto Ramos, who I love. And it has this kind of cartoony anime influence to it, except the faces and the facial proportions are just killing me. And like Wolverine's nose, every time we just have like a still shot on Wolverine and I have to look at that thing that's supposed to be a nose in the middle of his face is pulling me out of this and I have some similar things with Solemn in that like it's hard it's hard to be like yes sleek sexy boy oh my god I'm dripping for him when he's not eliciting any of those emotions that like naked Shaw in the fire was because he's got this like kitty juvenile bendy anime animation to him like it's it's a very not sexy type of drawing and so part of me feels like they might have compensated by trying to really over up the dialogue the sexiness in the dialogue like hot mouths and cool grapes and I can't really like I want Solemn to be able to be more subtle like I feel like if Vernick was drawing this and we were just getting a Solemn that is making us melt all over ourselves that the dialogue and the manners in which he is sluttily rubbing up against everyone could be so 
much more minimal and effective. And so I'm not sure if we're supposed to be seeing a character that is excessively explicitly coming out this way more and more each time he appears, or if that's just the only way that it could come across when paired with this particular artist. So I think Solemn is kind of like one of those characters that's like everybody's problematic fave because you really should not be rooting for Solemn. You might get some looks if you're like, yeah, I like Solemn. I think that's a good character. I agree with you, Josh, in that if Solemn is this character of only defined by his feelings of lust, and you know we know this because Emma psychically scanned him and he's like, that's literally all he thinks about. He only thinks about fucking constantly. He just wants to fuck everything. I think there are ways that you can make a character like that through show, not tell, through the art where it feels subtle, where it feels comedic, where it feels interesting, where it feels dangerous, where it feels all these different emotions, but doesn't come across one note creepy or like boring. And I don't know if this appearance of Solemn in terms of that kind of characteristic really highlights the character well enough to be that dichotomy to Logan. I do think Solemn running to Logan asking for help to basically kill the Beast's daughter because they're after him. And Logan's like, no, we're doing what I want to do, which kill the god first and then we'll go down to hell i do think that part is interesting but i don't know if everything else about it where solemn really works here i feel this appearance was a little too close to a de- the dynamic of deadpool and wolverine and there's nothing wrong with that dynamic but then why wasn't it just deadpool i understand that deadpool is currently you know in the belly of, was in the belly of a polar bear <laughs> i don't know I, I don't know if this was the best utilized version of solemn for me i can see what the intention was i think there were some mis- in how the execution brought it about. And I think he's a character that it's going to take some time for him to really settle into, like, does he just remain a problematic fave that maybe is not the wisest choice to employ? Or do we start to get something out of this pansexual, does whatever he wants, like, gives us a little bit of queer representation that's, like, baddie, but hopefully not villain, hopefully not just playing into queer as villain tropes. The other thing I really have to bring up in relation to all this is the insane connections and implications that them dealing with the Beast has for the Punisher book that Nico and I are currently covering. I, yeah, a thousand percent. Please, please punish us with with the punishment. I am really astounded that they went this hard with the Beast given how subtle it's supposed to be in Punisher. I do think that while it might be cliche it could be interesting to be like I have a hard exterior because it's made out of adamantium but I'm really just soft inside kind of vibe but then I feel like that's like I think maybe it'd be better to, like you said, keep him a baddie that does bad things, but is not villainous. Like, he does bad things, but he's not a villain. And I know that seems like a weird distinction, but I think that's what he should be. I want him seducing more people's husbands. That's how we were introduced to him. That was the promise of Solemn. We want him seducing people's husbands. I love that you're basically saying that you want to see, like, Shaw. Because that's what I think Shaw would do in an alternate lifetime. I think he would be like a gigolo, right? And he would constantly charm women away from their husbands and then marry elderly women and I really want to see them in some sort of toxic male the running of the bulls kind of which one of them can steal more wives in a weekend sort of horror show of a film. (laughs) Is there a male version of a black widow? That trope of like women who marry older men for money and they mysteriously die. Is there a male version of that? A toxic leech. Ooh how alpha of you. 
I also think it's really funny that in this like very pansexual scene in which like it's a big group dynamic, there are men present. So there is a much clearer implication that he also fucks the men, but the only the women are touching him. And when we go in for the close up, he kisses the woman and shoves the grapes in the dude's face. <laughs> With like a solid amount of distance between, and it's Balls just you. Funny, it's well, just yeah, this funny like. Well, right, but it, there's also this like standards and practices thing to it, where it's like, okay, if it's just him, he can be a little gay. If it's like him and a dude, he can be a little gay. But if we're gonna go all the way into group orgy scenes, he needs to be pretty heterosexual it's in not the orgy gay scenes. When it's in a three-way, that is okay. so what it feels like. When it's in a three-way, they're like, you can imply in the orgy that he fucks the dudes, but we really need to see only the women touching him. That's just what standards and practices has told us is okay. So I want to ask you guys, since this is Verse X and we're trying to figure out how these two books either work together or work disparately to create that view of, in this case, not just the X-Men, but the X-Men's part in Judgment Day. My question for you guys become, how do these books either help enforce your understanding of Judgment Day as a title or work to defeat it? I know for myself, the inclusion of Eros was, I guess, pleasant. You know, I every time he shows up, I just want him to have a little ship and have a ton, like a ton of little talking animal friends. And it's really disappointing that he doesn't. And the bigger thing that this helped me to see was for the first time in a very long time, I feel like an X-Men event was designed or a Marvel Universe event at that was designed with the intention of allowing existing stories to play out in the title without being dramatically changed. If it wasn't this giant celestial, it would be a sentinel that was tracking them down and if it wasn't the fact that it was the battle with the Eternals it would be a fight with Horticulture or the Russians in Immortal I perhaps am a little curious about the fact that in the pages of Punisher I would consider the Beast's main title at the moment he is uh, about as silent as Chernabog from Fantasia and Kingdom Hearts but in the pages of Wolverine he is as loquacious as an actor being asked about their process on inside the actor studio they're so, legitimately talking to a statue in punisher <laughs> like there and it doesn't move and it just judges them silently and like literally and so here the fact that it's like a motherfucking stand-up set i'm not quite sure what to do with it but on yeah. the whole this makes me love judgment day more and it makes me see that the x-men aren't going to get lost in the shuffle of a crossover absolutely i think this is one of the things that we were and i know i personally was optimistic about going in is because kieran gillen is is really navigating the flagship title here for the X-Men. He was navigating the Eternals. He is that this isn't a crossover push down, that this is him naturally building towards something larger. And it's not it's not forcing things to take a break for it. It is playing much more nicely into the destinies of X trajectory of the X line and what the Marvel Universe as a whole is is doing right now in comics. So you know, Gillen being over these is definitely paying off in the way that we hoped it would. Colossus, who, you know, I tell you that I, I find to be a, a fairly boring character most of the time. And I do like that because we have this lingering him being controlled by the Russians and having his story written, like, I do like that even without it being mentioned, that if he does something just a little bit off or questionable, or we take a little note, like, hmm, he was the lowest, the least likely to vote for this or he was anything that we get to have this little bit of doubt 
about in terms of is that a Colossus reason or is that a Mikhail reason? I really like. I think it's given an interesting aspect to the usage of that character without having to even do much with it on the page anymore. That's added a little more depth and enjoyment as he pops up throughout this story. And to look at the kind of Versex, what these two books are doing, how they're similar and different, it's interesting that Gillen has really set up this formula for himself of one character per book, deep dive as best he can, really give their perspective. Sometimes there's history. Josh, I mean, you really, you make such a good point insofar as like he has gotten incredible mileage out of that Exodus story and really done good work with it. Like it's not just that he keeps using it repeatedly and real hard. It's that what he's doing with it is actually pretty interesting. But the carryover is, I wouldn't even say minimal, but like, you know, after your one issue, you, whatever else is explored about a particular character is definitely scaled back. Hope after her issue has not really had the same amount of presence. Same thing, you know, Destiny had an issue and then she appears throughout the book, but we're not doing the same deep dives with her because it's really, you know, we've got to focus on one person per issue. By contrast, Ben Percy is not just taking Wolverine, but also a small event in X Lives and 10 Deaths, and then a bunch of pages of X-Force to really deep dive into Logan. And we are getting into, I want to say every corner, but the fact of the matter is, Logan contains infinite multitudes, and this is really every corner of the Percy Logan, and it sets aside a lot of stuff that is other people's vision of Logan, and that's totally okay by me, but he really is going hard on basically just Wolverine in his ex-work. We're getting a little bit with other people. I think we're finally starting to see Sage and Beast come to a head, but that's a pretty external conflict. We're not getting the big internals with them. We're not going deep into their lives. It is pretty much just Wolverine for him. It's all Wolverine all the time. If you had asked me even two months ago, but definitely six months to a year ago, I would say it's not working and that, you know, what Gillen's doing worked immediately from issue one. This was really a turning point for me in feeling like kind of in a lot of ways I've surrendered to it, especially because we're starting to see the other threads in X-Force get pulled together. The fact that so much of it has been a focus on Wolverine on top of Wolverine is becoming a little bit more okay with me. So two very different styles, one and done versus many, many and ongoing. And I think they both really do have their merits. It also comes down to whether or not you like characters. Yeah, some of it with Percy too is that, you know, he gives us too much Wolverine and we're like, okay, like more of these other characters. And then, you know, he'll do Beast in a way that is a little problematic or Sage in a way that is so fucking problematic. And we're like, all right, fine, fine, fine. Go back to Logan, fine. Okay, all right, all right. Because he does have Logan. He's had a great voice on Logan since before he started this. You know, he did the audio adventures that had a fantastic voice on Logan. He nailed in that one panel from Ten of Swords where Logan had to look in the mirror at all the shit he's done wrong and you just see him like holding that paint. Like he has nailed Logan in such a true way a number of times. It's the biggest comparison for me on these two issues. One of them is a gay writing a straight and we're like, oh my God, why is he so fucking hot? And the other is a straight writing a gay and we're like, why is he not hot enough for this? So there's my verses. I don't know if this really helped my understanding fully 
particularly of Judgment Day, only in the sense of I'm slightly confused. Maybe it's because I don't know the character well enough. If the daughter of the beast spends more time in hell, does she spend enough time in, on Earth to be considered a resident to be judged? Is it did she just happen to show up during this time that she gets judged? So does that mean like she's an immigrant? Yeah, no, he says that. He's basically like, if you want to hang out here, you're getting judged like everybody else. So if so if someone from the Shi'ar just happened to just pop on Earth and be like, oh, what a great time for a vacation. Yeah, I don't know why they're getting that. judged or they better go back home. Fascinating. I just also want to see every chipmunk judged. I want to mm. see every tsetseep fly judged. I want to see every semi-sentient, like right? I want to see also like anybody trapped here because that does explain why some of our interdimensional and interterrestrial non-resident beings that chill on Earth to help protect us, but you know, really do identify another world as their home would also be subjected to the same kind of judgment. I really actually appreciate that notion because it makes it feel like it's about the rock soul, like, you know, the the the, the planet Earth spirit, not the people. It's about judging for the host, not the, the populace. And I really appreciate that distinction. And if this trial and if this test for each individual on Earth, and hopefully it's for every sentient being, like I hope a tree, like you, you know, you were joking about the chipmunks and the tsetse flies and all that. I hope the trees and the flowers aren't exempt from this as well. Also the algae. I don't know if there was enough. I think in, in more X-Men, I got the clear notion and connection because it was very overt and obvious to Judgment Day, to the judgment, to the trial. But when it comes to Wolverine, it felt like that was secondary because it seemed like other people were judged immediately, but it seemed like the beast, the daughter's beast, Wolverine and Solemn, kind of get to postpone their judgment. And I don't know how to feel about that specifically because then that begs the question, well, why them? Why do they get to postpone it based off of this mission they're doing? I don't know if that's specifically about conviction they're just trying to accomplish all three of them are trying to accomplish a specific kind of goal so it does feel a little well some people are gonna get judged right away and their test will be about five minutes while others will won't be and they get to go on this long mission of seeing if they will be judged or not and some people's judgment will also manifest in the real world i was up so was exodus's trial because he's a powerful psychic that all that was in the real world or i'm because i was just a little confused on that because it seemed like everybody else's judgment happened in their mind kind of i mean Nobody else, saw, nobody else saw Negasonic Teenage Warhead when Emma was being judged. Just us. I love that he shows up as somebody with his one fucked out eye. Yes. What a horrible, like I just, that that is the thing that they decided to do to be like, that's how you know it's him is the, is the best. Well, I love a good part. fucked out eye hole. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nico here again, and I hope you guys really enjoyed that look at Immortal X-Men and Wolverine number 24. I love doing this versus coverage because it's not really about saying which one is better. It's about taking a look at how the two books come together to sort of build a look at a line or a week or maybe just a character. And in our next segment, we have a look at two different runs of Moon Knight, the current Moon Knight by Jed McKay, issue number 15, as well as the final two issues of Moon Knight Black, White, and Blood, the most recent in the anthology series that Marvel has been using as a method of exploring what makes these characters work and the different sorts of stories you can tell with each of them. After that, we're going to take one final look at Teeny Howard and Bob Quinn's Incredible Knights of X, a title that we loved as a team, and we look very much forward to the future of Captain Britt. And in your future, you guys can check out this show Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays taking a look at the complete, complex world of Spider-Girl, and Wednesdays and Fridays we take a look at more of the Marvel comics you love coming out right 
right now. You can check out the show at xsforpodcast.com as well as xsforpodcast on Twitter. Don't forget, you guys can find me over at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram, as well as my original work at kidriotcomics.com and in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology featuring some incredible queer creators. We hope you guys really enjoy that. Until next time, enjoy these final two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit. This Krakoan gateway is open and we'll see ya. Everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X for Podcast, where we get together every week and talk about our favorite issues that have come out. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can see me actually adding Jen McKay, asking for him to bring that sexy sweater back. Hello, it's me, Steve, and my pronouns are they and them. You can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And this is Juancho. You can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa. And that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. And you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram and any place that you know, I'm around. Find me. It's cool. <laughs> she is. You can find her. It's easy. And she's amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and like, right? We hope you survive this experience. Unlike sometimes my hope for the Black, White, and Blood series. Oh, 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 oh. oh. Yeah, that's some truth right there. Before we talk about what we're really here to talk about, Moon Knight 15, uh, let, let's kind of take a little bit of a dip into Moon Knight Black, White, and Blood 3 and 4. We've got a lot of stories by a lot of talent in the industry. Overall, I'm going to, like, not to shit on anybody's work, I, I don't love the Black, White, and Blood format, personally. The stories, obviously, because it's Black, White, and Blood, tend toward the violent side of the characters a lot more. Mm. I think there is some good legwork in some of these stories to talk about their mental state. You know, we've got a lot of AUs that show up or things that are not quite canon in certain things. And mm-hmm. I think it, to me, confusing as a reader because you don't really get explanations. It's like somebody who's watching, like, The Walking Dead or American Horror Stories and watches the anthology series sometimes. Most of them are going to be dependent on if you are in love with the gimmick that All right. Mm-hmm. So, in Black, White, and Blood 3 and 4, like, are there any stories that really stand out in a positive way that grab any of y'all. The first story, number four, by uh, Christopher Catwell and Alex Linz. I actually, that's probably the only story I really enjoyed out of the whole series because it had an interesting format with Moon Knight as like a piece on a gaming board and he had to, like every turn he moves, he had to front uh, confront something from his past. But in the end, the biggest confrontation was always himself. And that was, I think that was a very clever way of like referencing Moon Knight's past. But in the end, making it clear that Moon Knight's always going to struggle the most with himself and his mental illness and his personalities and his bad choices in life. So I thought that was clever. I enjoyed the art. I The use of red, which has not always been the case for this series. I thought that story specifically had the best use of layout as well in any of these stories. Like it had a really exciting and interesting layout. It was fun. The art was very dynamic. I don't, I'm not really such a, so fond of the figure, the figure work, but the layout and the dynamism of the comic and the use of the blood was like very good i would say that the layout sort of remind me of a chessboard which i think highlights what you were mm-hmm. saying steve that the moon Knight as a game piece worked so yeah i think that's a that's that worked for that for that short story 
I liked the I liked all of the art in number three a lot. I thought David Lopez and Erica Schultz's story had a really fun, like almost cartoon atmosphere to it. Even if I was not always like into the story itself, but I, I thought it I thought it told itself really well as a you know writing and art duo. I think Gabriel Morissette Fond does a really good job in No Empty Sky, and I think Stefano Raphael does like a really killer work on Astronauts. I thought a lot of that was fun, even if I didn't think any of those stories really used the red in a really effective way. I thought the, the figure work and the dynamism of the stories worked, worked very well. My favorite story out of the series, out of the four issues that I've read, was that David proposed one that was in the diner that had, you know, the three mm. yes. issues, three and four. There weren't any stories that so much grabbed me that I was like, except for I did like the first one in issue four that you were talking about, Wancho. I thought that was a really well constructed story, The Good Morning. But there weren't any stories that grabbed me like, oh my God, this is great. I want to see more of this. But there also weren't any stories that I was like, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to read this. Yeah, I think it is funny that we got two like all-star writers doing stories about Moon Knight on the Moon over the course of these. <laughs> you know, between Jonathan Hickman and Anisette here, like both both touching this strange like Moon Knight in space kind of idea, but you know, doing it in very different ways. But I also think that like Raphael and Bachelot, while they don't have similar styles at all, have like sensibilities in common in terms of the way that they like yeah. to things around. And it was kind of nice to get like the bookends, even if that wasn't actually the last issue of the series or anything yeah let's move on to the real main event what we're all here to talk about moon Knight number 15 is brought to us by our fantastic writer jen mckay alessandro capuccio is our artist rochelle rosenberg is our color artist and we're 15 issues in and like every issue to me is still bringing something new and something fresh and this we're seeing mark try to work more with his other personalities uh integrate himself more into it and be honest with the people that he's working with in, in a level that I never thought I would see Mark Spector be able to do. Like, overall thoughts on this issue just from all y'all. I really liked this issue in a lot of ways, and one of the things I really liked about it is that we're finally talking about DID in a Moon Knight comic. It's something that I feel like most Moon Knight readers have a lot of trepidation about because of how it's been handled in the past. Um, It's really nice that this starts off with him saying, like, you know, I'm not talking about your DID. Why don't we ever talk about it? And right out of the gate, Andrew Sermon says, we don't talk about it because we're doing triage. We need to talk about the danger and the threat that you pose to the world. And the danger that you pose as Mark Spector and as the Moon Knight is so far above and beyond any danger you might pose to anybody as a mentally ill person or a person with DID. And I honestly, there's a breath of fresh air because it's important, like people with... I, I have no idea what it's like to be a pluralistic person or a person with DID or anything like that. But people with the kind of mental illnesses that are made into monster movies that are made into horror movies in American mainstream media and around the world. I, I know for a fact that a lot of them are very, very tired of being seen as dangerous or a monster or a threat constantly. And I love that she's like, yes, you are a danger. Yes, you are a threat. And that's why I'm here. But there's something that's actually a threat and it's you being the avatar of a crazy moon God. It has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that, you know, you are struggling with this internally and mentally. I both sort of loved it and hated it because Mark, Stephen, and Jake have been working on themselves and basically doing their own kind of therapy session so that they understand each other better and so that they integrate their roles better. Because each of them does very much have 
a role and and has a, a place in in the overall personality they are very much needed but like they've been literally doing their own therapy sessions so that they become more stable and 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 more in control and better integrated as a group and i love to see that and i love to see like i love to see that that stern has been or sternman has been a good therapist but even they have failings and i love the fact that they aren't a perfect therapist because they're going oh you know we're just doing triage mark is the threat and it's like i don't think you realize that all three of them are in this body all three of them have to deal with conchu on some level all three of them have a potentiality to become a world takeover kind of situation because all three of them are the fist of conchu they're just slightly different phases so i'm just like i i love the fact that she is not infallible but i also love the fact that for once we see mark bringing up the did and and like hey we need to talk about this because it does exist and we need to get clear on some facts real quick i'm like thank you and i loved the reaction that the non-therapist people had to it and for once it wasn't oh my god you have did it wasn't the over-the-top reaction it was a much more calm oh okay this makes more sense okay so yeah okay yeah you're the boss let's do this yeah i mean that that is also really refreshing is seeing mark talk about it with people that he loves and knows and being able to trust them enough to tell them about this and for them to not immediately be afraid or off-put or distrustful of him which you know that's the experience you expect at least from media and probably in person i would imagine i i would say i the most hard like warming one and the one that he was probably the most afraid of because for, for you know for some reason he's really attached himself to Reese and really loves and respects that girl but like you could just tell how like the art in that page where he's sitting there telling her is so perfect because you can tell how like uncomfortable Mark is just talking about this to her because he doesn't want to change it and then her her reaction mm, so beautiful I, I listeners I cried at this hug that they give just I mean we rarely get this moments in in action comics like this like action-based comics and uh it was so beautiful to see and i like that it was colored very subdued aside from like a little glow on the moon from moon knight's mask it was a very subdued moment for both like the coloring and that just worked so well with what it represented that panel immediately after the hug where they like look away from each other a little awkwardly <laughs> and they're like let's not talk about this again because you know you're kind of either a teenager or a young woman and you find this dumb and gross and i'm an idiot so i find it dumb and gross well it was i think it's like two people who've been through a pretty epic amount of trauma one long term one more recently and so they're still dealing with a lot and letting that guard down and having an exposed or vulnerable moment is very new and outside the comfort zone for both of them so it's like i'm a tough vampire i'm the fist of conchu can we have a hug feelings it's like for once you don't have to be a dying child on a swing set to get a hug i love seeing these moments that are very very rare Mm -hmm. they just work so well of all of these you know tough guy comic book characters that have just been you know blood gut score and mercenary work for you know who knows how long like we're talking decades at this point it's great to see that they're changing and some of them are really like doing the legwork to become better people so Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about how Wolverine, when he needs therapy, just goes sniffing around the summer's house going, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, Scott, you'll do. I was like, what? Scotty, you home? I got to say, the only part of this issue that I didn't really like was the interaction with Soldier. Because while mm. it's a normal reaction for a guy like Soldier to be like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'll just, you know, what do you got to say? I don't like Soldier being flattened out into a dude who just does whatever he's told and is mm. literally named Soldier. So, like, it sounds like Moon Knight is talking to his personal army man. It does reflect the kind of person who would join Hydra, but it doesn't make me feel good about who this character is. Like, or what he's capable of doing if the right person or the wrong person tells him to do it mm-hmm. <laughs> i know no, he doesn't to everybody but you know no but I, i'm i'm definitely there with you on that i'm like i want to see him become more nuanced and and like grow a personality and grow an identity outside of oh yeah i was an army man for hydra like yeah. give me some nuance because i know it's there i know that like he's he's not like that the kind of guy who's joining hydra for the obvious reasons but it, you joined hydra man like there's gotta be something mm-hmm. else to you right that you couldn't have just signed up for the dental program come on <laughs> yeah there's aim for that <laughs> Uh, true. I mean, like, we at least got an explanation why Sam Guthrie joined the Hellfire Club and was trying to beat up mutants back in the graphic novel. So We do get to see how the various personalities in Moon Knight were able to work together. How Jake and how Steven and how Mark do business is completely different, but I think him using the full extent of his abilities in his personality is definitely a, a positive move, and I really loved the use of that in this issue so i love how he's taking what the world would see as a disability and using it as a strength and this may be i don't know if this is the first time but it feels like the first time in at least a very long time if if not ever that all of the personalities are fully aware of each other and can talk to each other openly mm-hmm. like that's that's nice and refreshing well yeah i i believe in one of the panels it does say like he was talking about yeah we've been working on integrating better mm-hmm. so like yeah you're absolutely right this is like the first time in a long time that the person personalities are not only talking to each other but aware of each other letting each other take over the body when they need to and we get to see them each accomplish the same goal but using their particular methods so jake lockley you know goes to like the deep seedy bars and you know ends up finding big claude but steven finds nemian and Grandmal using his very high fluten connections so like they both accomplish the same goal of finding people but in their ways and i love seeing that their way isn't wrong it's simply different i i do love how steven with the first second he takes control of the body in this issue and he looks in the mirror and he's like good lord mark <laughs> have you been taking care of us at all and he's like i know that there's all this stuff we have to do but i need a haircut <laughs> it, was, it was so very steven grant too yes the haircut is good too he looks great oh god yeah there yeah, you like, are. like, have you been taking care of your skin? We yeah. need to get hydrated. We need to get a mani pedi. And I bet he had one. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that was great. We need to get some nice drinks in too. That was fun. <laughs> I love yeah, this. And really I think one one really interesting touch is that I don't think we've seen before is that each personality has a favorite drink. Yeah. Very good <laughs> you know what? That, that was great. That's, that's very cool. Yeah, like Steve obviously is gonna drink high and scotch, and uh, let's say Jake drinks rum of questionable origin <laughs> and, oh, uh, 
But my favorite was Mark because he says, "You know why I drink vodka? Because it doesn't stain anything." Like, it's uh, just like I know, like you gotta get the drinks off his. You know, only blood on these clothes. No wrong. Yeah. wrong. <laughs> the vodka ice cold was really good. Like I thought that was great. Where he's like, it's like a bullet of ice in your stomach, no matter where you were or how hot it was. Like a piece of Chicago winter. That's how my parents drank it. I was like, oh, yeah, this guy is from Chicago. This is how everybody talks. Oh my god, I oh, I love that. I thought I thought it was so good because again it it shows the difference in personality by like the difference of what they drink like mark needed the the shot to the gut with you know something cold like ice in my veins it's like okay dude whatever <laughs> but like jake was like you know yeah i'll take rum and they're like you're such a freaking pirate and i'm like he's like i am pirate but yeah like each each one had a very not just a different drink but just like a kind of a different way to go about the exact same thing and i I loved it i really really loved it one of my favorite things ever is uh when mark takes off his fake mustache he'll he'll sometimes be in the middle of a fight and somebody will punch him really hard and be like i gotta switch out and he'll just peel off his mustache and it's like i'm here to kill He's pulling it off. He's like, "Hi, I'm Mark." It's like, "Oh shit, you're in trouble now." <laughs> I just want this to happen in front of Gina and her to be like, "That mustache is fake." <laughs> it's so strange we weren't in so far. But wouldn't you know the mustache is fake? Fake mustaches don't usually look great. <laughs> Well, I mean, if it, there's some really good prosthetics out there now, so... Yeah, Stephen Grant can afford a really good fake mustache. Okay. Well, I mean, I was just, I just, I don't know why I was assuming he was giving her mustache rides and I would think it would come off. Jake Lockley would, but Stephen Grant wouldn't. Oh, oh, Stephen Grant so would. <laughs> Stephen Grant so would. I mean, it's only gentlemanly. I love the fact that now there is some use of, of almost like trigger objects or, or trigger looks so that like you know a we know who's taken over and b it feels like it's also used to kind of help the personality itself anchor which is is kind of nice because it's like oh oh you are learning methods to become more stable and more realized honestly moon knight has probably never been scarier than when he can just switch between personalities and work together and integrate because like he's no longer fighting himself at every step of the way he no longer has to make a quick change or anything like that he can literally just peel off his mustache and he's like it's time let's go we're gonna interchange our skills overall this issue even though it was very light on fight was mm-hmm. probably one of my favorite issues so far and that's saying a lot because i i think I, I probably if you go back and listen to my recordings of moon Knight, you probably hear me saying it's like i think one of the best books that is coming out month after month at marvel wow it's like when you're like wow how can i like this thing even more than i already did mm-hmm. do any of y'all have a favorite art panel scene in this issue I have to say, for me, it's when you have the page where Mr. Knight is looking out into the city and the city lights are this, like, really, like, interesting shade of yellow that's almost like the shade of the sun, you know, and there, Mr. Knight, like, right at the top of it, it's like, Stephen Grant isn't getting anywhere near those two. And Andrea walks out to the roof meet Mark. Yeah, that panel has a very Jim Lee feeling to it. You know those famous covers with Batman and Superman doing the same pose? Yeah. Like one leg up? That, that oh, just yeah. feels immediate, just like it. That is a really beautiful scene, and the color work on it is astonishing. I'm so going to say it every single episode. But yeah, for me, it really was like the subdued colors and the close hug and the awkward uh, break apart of Risa and Moon Knight towards the end. It was just, that was just something unbelievable, and it really stirred me and moved me. The way that it's worked, their, their body language, the, the look on Mark's face under his mask, which you can see, is very interesting. 
and yeah i don't know that was my favorite i want to say that i mean i loved the whole issue it was so great to watch the colors change as the personalities that were interacting and taking over were were moving around but i really really loved uh it's a page i think right after sternman and 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 mark are you know talking and then it cuts back to uh big claude and jake but you can see the transformation from jake to mark with a little bit of stephen grant still thrown in and it's not just the look where he's peeling off the mustache and you can see the little band-aid across the nose it's also the fact that you can see the gradient of colors changing from the top to the bottom of the panel and i'm like this is awesome we're Ooh, we're yeah. getting to see a really subtle switch in in which personality is coming forward and it's not just a physical thing but also like a whole switch of personalities as indicated by colors and it's so beautifully done we've often mentioned that this is ratio rosenberg's uh, rosenberg's moon Knight run and i think this is one of those issues that really highlights it because each page is just exploding with color with like you said it like the background colors change we got the same neon pink from the uh, past I think from 13 with the Jake scenes and yeah. that really worked like That's some sort oh, of continuity yeah. with coloring but yeah I yeah, think like this is definitely Rachel Rosenberg's Moon Knight run like it's, it's <laughs> this book deserves an Eisner like oh yeah no I, I gotta say like I, whenever I read Moon Knight outside of book here and you know you don't get the amazing colors by Rachel Rosenberg like it just doesn't have that same feel like I read Moon Knight and Miss Marvel and I was like okay this is a good book but like i'm like i'm missing that color color of it mm -hmm. so like in any time like i don't get that lightly green glow off a of moon knight outfit i'm like wait is it really moon knight though right like i i never thought i would be so attached to um a colorist or a particular kind of like use of palette but rochelle rosenberg is just killing it with these colors and with the gradients and then transitions and the way the 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 palette tells a second story behind the the main plot that you see you know being put forward in the art or in the dialogue so it's 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 oh god my brain had a moment <laughs> it's like three stories in one much like moon knight who is three people in one you have the art you have the color and you have the dialogue and separately they tell a story and all of them run parallel but yeah they each have their own layer and their own kind of meanings which is much like mark and i love it i really really love it jed come in and like do the phone book in it, it with the same art and i still read the book because it would give that <laughs> that vibe that like that they're going for here and i was like be like okay cool this is really cool like this is one of those books where i think everybody's equally firing on all of their like cylinders and you've got the writing amazing you've got the art team amazing and it just really elevates a book to such an amazing level because we all know that there's books out there where you're gonna either love the writing or mm -hmm. like the art or love the art and like the writing but this is one of those books where i love them. i also wanted to say thank you so much for keeping mark's skin darker and not x 
accidentally wandering into later territory like mark's skin when it's exposed is consistently like dark is swarthy like it would be so easy to kind of air towards you know a lighter more uh european coloring you know just because you know you're switching from panel to panel sometimes you know you don't get a consistent skin color but like there is seems to be a lot of attention paid to skin tones and i so so appreciate that agreed i'm excited to learn more about greek saber tooth like i really 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 want to see more of the building they live in explored and mm-hmm. like the actual like the relationship between the midnight mission team and the midnight mission building and like i think there's some really horrifying and fascinating things you can do when you live in a house of lease the conversation between moon knight and uh hunter's moon mm-hmm. oh yeah we did not talk about that that was i thought that was because bad. that serves as a possible point of conflict between them in future issues mm-hmm. because moon knight's um hunter's moon's complaining that moon knight's not really solving his problems by letting them alive or live so i think that's gonna be like there's gonna be a moment where hunter's moon like i don't know kills greek saber tooth or whomever or the tutor or whatever mm-hmm. that's gonna be a big no-no from mark i think and possibly possibly a future conflict between them mark is way too upset about other people killing for my days i, I know it's it's weird but uh, that's this whole run it's been like i can kill people but you can because it's my whole this whole uh savior's burden that my the mark has mm-hmm. maybe he just really doesn't like people infringing on his gimmick he's like i'm the guy who in this group but i think it's very like self-inflicting suffering yeah no way that like me. yeah like woe is me kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh so probably that but we'll see i mean hunter's moon is very interesting and maybe we should get more about him later because i think he's been a bit sidetracked mm-hmm. lately yeah it's been a while since we got a really good like hunter's moon thing i it, it's it's very he's like one of the coolest characters in Introduced in Moon Knight in many, many, many years. Maybe the coolest character. So I like really want to see him do more stuff. I mean, even if they have to give him like a five issue mini, like the Golden Glider or Goblin Glider, Golden Goblin. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I would love to see that. I would, I, I would read that book and eat it the fuck up, especially if we had some of the same uh, creative team or heck, even a different thing. Jed's created such an amazingly rich character from his small amount of appearances that I, I could really see. Uh, that book taking off and it'd be mm-hmm. really I, I i do think you know like you said Wancho, it's gonna this gonna cause some conflict between mark and hunter's moon because you know anytime that you're oh well hey that's great that you have did because you know our god has facets and <laughs> you should oh respect my. all of them. yeah the religious bullshit i was like oh yeah like, oh, oh, oh. yeah annoying unsurprising from hunter's moon though Oh yeah, no, no, no! It fit him so perfectly. Like I'm like, yep, yep, yep. They but it also fits with Moon Knight's like his first appearance with the idea with the Bemis run, and that was after Mark developed his DID. That that was uh, Moon Knight. I'm sorry, Conchu's first contact was like right after. So it makes it seem even more predatory that Conchu. Like was targeting someone with mental instability and mental issues, mm-hmm. and like we already know, conscious like fucked up beyond belief, and even more so now. Hey 
everyone. Welcome back to another segment for X's for Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. Hey, everyone. I'm Jake, your resident magic, magic circle caster, and you can find me over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. I'm Josh. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and for some more political takes at F-L Politician. That's P-O-L-Y. And I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike Merlin, who will probably be back sooner or later. You're not really dead until someone's like, I want to use you in a story. And then Marvel goes, okay, or sometimes no. But anyway, that must mean we're covering Knights of X number five. Knights of X number five was written by Teeny Howard, with art by Bob Quinn, colors by Eric Arseniega, and letters by VCs Ariana Meyer. Now, this is the final issue and conclusion to the Knights of X series. We're not done with these characters, we will see them again in the future, but for now, the title of Knights of X is done. And before we talk about what Knights of X 5 specifically was about, I want to take a quick look through the entire story and see where everybody has been feeling about these issues. I really enjoyed 1 through 4 and the first half of issue 5. Teeny Howard, as a writer, I feel needs room to breathe, especially she's at her best when she gets to be both poetic and laying subtle threads and building deeper mythology her Excalibur really took a solid year for a lot of us to feel like it had found its footing but then when you went back and reread it in trade it read so much better and tight because she just needed that space and for me the last eight pages of this issue felt so rushed because this was five issues that you know should have been at least eight she would have benefited from more room to breathe and space to play on some of this and for me the ending it was a little more abrupt because I feel like Teeny's a writer that does keep a slower steady pace and so it felt much more jarring when we raced through and tied up like 17 plot lines in the last eight pages. This story felt like it was just getting the energy going by the time it came to its end. Five issues was not enough to tell what I think Teeny was trying to tell here. Just thinking about some of the story beats, you know, we were just at the the death and transformation part of the story, which like, you know, there's a lot of tarot symbolism and imagery that runs throughout this five-issue miniseries. And in the tarot sequence, death is like halfway through the story of the, the major arcana. There's still so many more beats to tell, and we don't really get to see the slow unfolding of the rest of this journey. It's, oh, Gambit's back. Oh, doorway's open. Oh, everything's done. And now we're moving on to whatever's going on with the Captain Brit War. And it felt like we could have spent so much more time in the Siege Perilous unpacking what's going on there because for the like three or four rereads I did of that Gambit in the castle sequence and I feel like I have a pretty solid grasp of kind of the the, the what but I really could have used more of it. I have to believe in her original planning that's an entire issue. At least. At least. Especially when we saw that she did a similar thing with Betsy and it was like five issues. I think that's such a good point of comparison because she really does like to take characters on these spiritual journeys where they have to reflect on these big beats in their life. I mean, that that moment with Shiro was such a great callback to his possession by Apocalypse and how, you know, they saved each other from that. It was hardly a moment on the page and it would have been such a great, like, I want more from this. 
I felt like there were too many characters off the board for too long to have them just show up and have things resolved. I was completely baffled by that, what, two panels of, of Shiro? One panel? Because I don't have that, that history. Even without that, like, let's just say objectively, like, you haven't even read any of these, you're not following the story, and someone tells you, yeah, 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 Gambit died, but then he's going to go on a huge spiritual journey we're gonna like flashback and we're gonna like revisit a major lost kind of moment that a lot of people forget from like a previous death and transformation for him then we're gonna bring like every fucking mutant on Krakoa in for a giant major battle on Otherworld we're going to end and resolve all of the mutants dying and coming back wrong on Otherworld and we're gonna save the day and just have literally every fucking character from the X world all in Otherworld celebrating their victory and that's going to happen on one page and a double page splash it reminded me so much of that scene at towards the end of x-factor when you've got all of the x-men coming out of mojo world after having overthrown it again um and you're just like i wanted to see the overthrow of mojo world i didn't want to see everyone walking away from it being like hey you want to get dinner after this um it just that yeah the the battle was not enough of a battle the like the stakes felt so for stakes that felt so high the 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 showing of those big moments was just so it wasn't given enough space oh this they, story. Did, they did the captain underpants thing for those of you who have children to watch captain underpants where they queue up the big battle and then they're like we don't actually have budget for this so da, 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 and then flash forward and the battle's over i hear what everybody's saying and i think i agree i think where the shorter amount works is i'm thinking modern day comics where i feel like nothing is set in stone much like modern tv shows where you're really no longer guaranteed pretty much anything anymore. I was thinking back to a lot of very popular sitcoms that go on for anywhere from like 7 to 11 seasons and you have to think about that. You're on TV for a decade doing the exact same show, the exact same character and that's weird and fascinating that that's not really a thing anymore. I don't really think there's like a modern sitcom show and what I'm really more looking at as opposed to like, you know, game shows and other kind of things that have been on the air for so long but I don't think there's a modern day equivalent where they've gone on forever. It's you just, you get you're lucky if you get your second season really and you just move on to the next thing. Not, it's, I don't feel like a lot of things are about the art form anymore. It's about, well, what are people watching? What do people want to consume? And uh, the way that we structured everything, we've kind of forced our culture to be, you consume it all at once and then you just move on to the next thing. You, sometimes you don't even go back to what you consumed, even if it does get another you know, season or show. So I get fearful for comics that if they go on for too long, they're going to abrupt, kind of endly similar to this. I don't mind when there is a short amount of issues, but the story keeps continuing, a la Jane Thor, which is going through different titles, all the stories being connected and collected in the same, you know, omnibus, trade, however they are coming together. It's all collected in the same way. It's a continuation story where fans keep going. That's what I don't mind. I don't like when stories like this are cut short because I do agree this specific story needed a lot more time. Finishing it in this way does feel like, well, the potential here was pretty great. I wish we could have gotten that instead. Yeah, the idea that, like, you don't want someone to set out building a great story that they'll never get to finish properly. I want every writer, every storyteller, everybody in this collective team to be able to tell the story they want to tell. And, you know, however long that takes, it gets to take. But I also feel bad in saying that that's not where we're at anymore. And I think that sucks. For what it's worth, if you guys enjoyed this story, I felt like there were a lot of really similar resonances in this uh, comic called Promethea by Alan Moore. A lot of, like, spiritual journey through another realm, growing and developing 
evolving and changing and coming out the other end a different person. Really, 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 really beautiful work too. This is not a Promethea podcast. And this is also not a Persona podcast, but that's what it made me think of, of like, oh, we're going through tarot cards, facing your inner self, the oh, demons that sure. you don't want to look at, you know, finding that mask. As somebody who's only really more versed in X-Men comics for the past two years and a little bit here and there uh, and other timelines and time spaces, I didn't fully understand everything that was going on with Gambit, but I wanted to know everybody's feelings about Gambit and what we did get. Because I feel like this, like you said, Josh, this should have probably been its own issue, just exploring this castle and going through the the many timeline variations of Gambit. It really didn't make sense to me the first time I read it. The characters were exploring Gambit's fears about dying in Otherworld. I wish that we had gotten more time with this. There was just so much that could have been explored. The Santo thing was really confusing to me until I read it again, where it just clicked that Santo was the representation of Gambit's worry about coming back as something similar to what happened to Santo. So even before we get into Gambit, on that first opening page, you know, where they talk about that Arthur died in the muck, and I had to get up and be like, wait, the fuck? And I had to, like, go, you know, across the house and dig out Knights of X4 and reread through it, and I mean, I guess he could have died. We just saw Mercator being like, oh, you're gross. Go back in the mud. There was a lot of just kind of, you know what? We're gonna have to make assumptions or There was, it almost felt like reading some Silver Age storytelling, where instead of seeing conversations and interactions build over panels, you get like one panel for each conversation or interaction, and that's going to be it. And then we jump to the next. The fact that some of it didn't land, it was just because it felt rushed. Even Gambit's like continued fear of hurting the people that he loves again. You know, Gambit was the great traitor of the X-Men. He he led the first Sinister's Marauders to the Morlock Tunnel for the slaughter but like it's all kind of baked into this but it's also it helps to be familiar with the character's history to kind of really get what the depth of what this story is and what she's trying to tell here but you know without some of those reference points it's kind of it's easy to lose it for this exact same character like it took a lot to be able to kind of really lay that out and humanize and make relevant to what he he was going through at the time which was you know trying to reconnect and and find that place with with rogue if you have to truncate the story of gambit then getting reducing it to that time he became death works for the story of his resurrection you would love to see this at least two issues give it some real breathing room i did like the appearance of sunfire here because it was more of an appearance than he's really had over when he was over on the x-men team the house of cards i thought was pretty it was clever enough and uh, there was at one point though that Megan got hit and then I was like oh is Megan, did Megan die no she was fine and I was that was a little weird I guess if, really if there was anything to specifically maybe cut out of what we actually got in order to expand on the things that maybe needed to be expanded on I probably would have and this might be a blasphemous hot take I might have cut the gambit stuff in order to talk a lot more about what's going on with Betsy afterwards or expand upon the fight something else where I think this I think story works much better expanded but truncated I think 
a little bit of the meaning is lost in a way that I don't know if it feels completely necessary then. Because if this whole quest was about the Siege Perilous, well, we got there. And then now we have to fight over the people who are trying to take it from us. But then I don't know if we have room for this introspective of Gambit's life and his fears because we didn't really get to talk about the fight. It was just like, Gambit wakes up and the fight's kind of already over. Yo, in eight pages, we resurrected Gambit. We found the Siege Perilous. We had a fight against Merlin for Otherworld. They took over. Betsy executed Merlin. Betsy found out that she's going to work for herself and doesn't need a universal omnimagistric. Betsy and Rachel are now going to be a team traveling the multiverse together, a multiversal guide and leaders. They've like, did so much shit happened. They executed Merlin. So much shit happened so quickly. Let's actually talk about a character that was introduced here, was talked, was referenced earlier in, in Excalibur. And then I think also because of the short time constraint, didn't really get enough. Mordred. Mordred. Friend of Mordred. A friend of Mordred. Friend of Judy. Mordred, I don't know actually had enough to do in this story. And that makes me sad because I actually find that fascinating. I like the idea of taking Arthurian legend and saying, well, Mordred, he's a mutant. And that's why Arthur hated him. And I'm like, that, okay, I'm on board with this. But then their entire fight happened off panel. This entire thing of Mordred going through of not killing his father, instead choosing to spare him and breaking this dark prophecy, which is sure, I guess that comes into arguments about fate and what does and doesn't happen then. But I think that's fascinating, but I feel like, again, a supplement of this issue. They went into like a pit to fight to the death and like four pages later, they're just sitting under a tree chilling and it's like, oh yeah, they didn't kill each other. That was cool. There were just pages like dropped there for sure. This whole thing is an experiment in narrative economy though. Clearly this is a story that was supposed to be longer and had to get truncated. And so I have to imagine that, I mean, of all the characters, of all the warriors in this this group of 10, Mordred is the most likely to carry over to any Captain Britain series because he makes the most sense to do so he's you know he's an otherworld knight and captain avalon just invited him to go hang out in avalon so i imagine the plan is to give us more close time with mordred in whatever the next iteration of the otherworld storytelling is but this was just yeah i mean we know that his mutant power is to stoke ire which (laughs) that's just so funny and everyone being like we can all admit it right he's really fucking annoying and i was trying to be nice <laughs> As a sl- slight critique and me being a hashtag gamer, why didn't Shatterstar say draw aggro? Because he was talking about be- like he said something about internet space and like what his, his power is. But I was like, oh yeah, he draws aggro. That- that's what In it's called. In the game arenas, we call that drawing threat. And I was like, yeah, what? No, Shadowstar is a fake gamer, and he was a streamer. He was literally on the Marvel equivalent of Twitch, and literally, it was just a small thing of like, that's not we don't we don't you don't call out to your your guild that's that not you're the word drawing threat. No, you draw aggro. <laughs> It's fine. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a one line that uh, uh, where it doesn't specifically matter. They also loved to talk about Mordred. Like, it was a, an actual fascinating thing that I found where all of these characters love to talk about Mordred around him, but not actually to him. It didn't really seem like anybody was actually talking to Mordred. He kind of just seemed like he was there going along in this journey. And any conversation that revolved around him or was vital about information about him was talked about him. And I thought that was, looking back at that, I find that fascinating. Now Krakoa has another gate to other world but this time at the siege perilous and i wanted to talk about the ramifications of what that means because that's interesting now i feel like krakoa and mutants are in general are now kind of like just taking 
all over Otherworld? Because now they basically con- own and control two of the slices. What's to say that they're not going to stop? Three if you count the Arachnid one. Oh, so three. And let's not forget that Jim Jaspers, who controls the crooked market, is a mutant. So there's at least like a strong diplomatic tie. And they saved him. So, you know, there's a strong diplomatic tie to, to a fourth. And Death is, you know, hanging out with the vampires. I'm not saying he's taking over. He's going to take over and rule. Uh, I believe it's Seveleth, right? Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think he's more like a diplomatic presence in Seveleth because they all chill. Really, They chill well together. They vibe. He's just hanging out. Well, he is Death, you know. So was Gambit. Did we talk about how basically the horsemen were essentially the same names as as <laughs> Apocalypse's actual children. Like, if you were Apocalypse's kid, wouldn't you be mad if he just gave your name to somebody else? <laughs> I think I always thought they were titles. I didn't think that Death was his actual name. I thought, I mean, like, because it's it's clearly something that he's passed along again and again. Or maybe he honors his children by bestowing those titles onto these powerful mutants that he empowers. But I don't know. It felt like a something done out of reverence more than out of like I've renamed my new puppy the name of my old dog, kind of. You know. Well, you're not wrong but also <laughs> my question is how many x-men have been horsemen of apocalypse because it's a high number at this point you got warren gambit and shiro and wolverine that's four and i know there are more with caliban didn't caliban replace warren in the old x factor oh you know it sounds really bad but i never count caliban as an x <laughs> oh Poor I mean, he's a Morlock first, you guys. And he was kind of an honorary member of X-Factor and they kind of ignored him for a while. I guess he was on X-Force after he was big, after he got swole. Well, I mean, he did try to kidnap Kate Pride and try to marry her when she was 14. Oh, that's such a good, bad issue. It's really funny because that also has appearances of not only Carol Danvers, but also Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman. They're just hanging out in New York. They are. They at, just uh, have Coney a good time. Island. Yes. It was also, I believe at the time he was writing Spider-Woman. And I, do- I talk about it all the time. It's my favorite panel ever in existence of comics. And I, I, I wish I can find it online because that specific issue isn't available on like Marvel Unlimited. But there's a like basically redoing Jessica Drew and she's just flying in the air. And at one point, Morgan Le Fay is supposed to be her arch nemesis. And she like tumbles in some wind, but she doesn't specifically know if it's Morgan Le Fay, but she blames it on her. Then Morgan Le Fay's face like appears like faded in the sky, like she's Simba's <laughs> dad, and it's really funny. She's like, ah, I've done it. That was my wind. My nefarious wind. Speaking of Morgan, which is a funny segue, I'm also surprised that Morgan Le Fay didn't play a larger role in any of this. I know that she mm-hmm. was taken off as a character off the table for a while because Apocalypse was running like magic experiments on her and we're like kind of okay with that because it's Morgan Le Fay, I guess. But I don't, she's free. She's free. And she she has a lot of power over in Britain, funny enough. But it feels surprising that she's not here. She hasn't She hasn't been a player in any of the story. And I, I know adding another character wouldn't be anything. It's not really needed. But I do think it's interesting that who was the big bad, I sent for a little while in Excalibur and was given all basically all of her power back, is no longer really interested in Otherworld. I mean, I, I would love to see her like run for prime minister minister of the uk because i think at this point that would be a good fit for morgan Le Fay. is, is she not interested or is that just a thread that got dropped well she crossed over into the uk last we saw her and was like taking shelter with 
with Coven Akaba. Yeah, Coven Akaba. He stopped visiting the UK once we were done with Excalibur. And we've, I guess maybe they'll just be anti-mutant the entire time and we'll just let that. The last thing I wanted to like really cover, and this is, uh, it's a very big thing that we really only get two pages about, is Betsy deciding that Captain Britain and the Captain Britain Corps no longer serve the magic tricks. The magic, whatever the word is. They're no longer, they're not going to serve Opal and Saturnine. Magic, magic tricks? Yeah, magic, <laughs> ma- the magic trick cereal. The tricks are for kids. And Betsy said, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm an adult and I'm going to do what I want. How do we feel about Betsy saying no to you, Opaluna Saturnine, no to you, Lady Roma, but you were the least mean, which was, a, that was a very, like, almost out of pocket, but very funny line to me that you were the nicest, but still no. And then killing Merlin because Merlin was just being a dick the entire time. This is a very interesting step for the Captain Britain Corps and the Captain Britain canon of them going to defend the multiverse, which is what they've always done, but they're going to do it kind of girl bossing it by themselves. I absolutely love it. There's been pushback between her and Saturnine for since the beginning. And for her to look at their relationship and say, no, I don't need you in my life telling me what needs to be done anymore. I love that. And looking at Roman and saying, hey, you manipulated me just like Saturnine did, even though you were trying to be helpful. I loved it. And I'm excited to see how the Captain Britain Corps can actually do their work without having to report to these two leaders. Yeah, does this mean it's the Captain Britain Cooperative now? <laughs> I mean, uh, half joking though, because like how, you know, what is the what is the power dynamic? Is 616 Betsy the leader of the Captain Britain Cooperative? If so, does that not mean she's just kind of filling that same role? Or is it going to be a horizontal power structure that's, you know, completely democratized? For me, it raises a lot more questions than it kind of like paints a picture of what the future is going to look like. Because all that it, all that we really know for sure is that Rachel's powers, Ascani's powers, facilitate whatever Roma and Saturnine and I guess sometimes Merlin were offering to allow the Captain Britain Corps to do their jobs. Really, it feels like a whole new era where anything could happen really because we we have never this is an unprecedented unshackling of that power it feels more like they're just sending them off to wander so they can be gone for an indefinite amount of time because they don't have something planned to me like when Excalibur ended and we were getting Knights of X like that ended and then we got like a page reveal like the story continues in Knights of X like if they had something to sell I feel like they would have been selling us on the next thing at the end of this this felt much more like apocalypse heading back with his family to i with like up oh, and they're just gonna be gone for now but you know they'll come back eventually and tell us all about, all about what the fuck was going on this felt more like that to me like they're just kind of going off in the sunset on an adventure and we're not gonna be following them monthly i mean that's hard to deny which is sad because i do want and like when this first dropped i was seeing people like you know there was definitely buzz on twitter and people like well wait are we getting is Excalibur coming back are we getting a Captain Britain monthly like no it said Captain Britain will return it's going to be a Captain Britain monthly but like again we wouldn't be guessing they'd be telling us if they wanted us to buy something they'd be selling it so I I am not optimistic which sucks because this was great it's chilling because it's you know it's another one of the prominent queer women writers you know 
on a Marvel book. You've got these queer characters who are now on the page queer and suddenly they're going off into the sunset and not going to be a regular part of our, you know, our regular X updates. There's something very frustrating about that. Something else I think about is like, I'm happy for Betsy and Rachel and I'm happy to see that developed further. I guess part of me is like, well, I guess it just said fuck Krakoa. Truly are just going to go do their own, you know, woman thing. And I, I appreciate that part at least. I agree with the sentiment that it feels hard to get excited about any potential stories for a future Captain Britain title because, well, we don't really know what that future is supposed to be right now. And that might just because they're keeping it hidden. It might, for whatever reason, we're not obviously not in the editors uh, in the X office. So we don't know everything that's going on. And it does feel like a hollow victory where we didn't really get to see the couple be a couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Hold hands and walk off into the sunset a little. I mean, we did get a beautiful page with butterflies and shit. Oh, the kiss. And and Bob Quinn, like we haven't given him enough credit on this because we've been talking about the editorializing. Bob Quinn doing absolutely everything he fucking can mm-hmm. on this book. A lesser artist, this would have felt like a hot mess, you know, like shipped out because they'd already paid for it. And I'm thinking in my mind of the end of Fraction's Fantastic Four run after Fraction quit and they had to wrap up the story and so they brought Carl Kessel in and it made no goddamn sense because Carl Kessel didn't even know what fucking story he was trying to wrap up. Like, this could have felt like that with the way all of these stories, all of these threads got tied up so quickly, what feels really edited, it feels so chopped up. So the fact that it is as consumable and digestible and pretty as it is all goes to Bob Quinn carrying some, doing some some heavy, heavy lifting here. Not that that's Teeny's fault, but again, you know, the way that this thing was cut together really asked to do a lot and given every everything uh, fantastic job by him on this this whole series all five issues were gorgeous absolute shout out friend of the pod bob bob quinn whose art listen i i am not saying this because i really enjoy and appreciate bob as a person i genuinely do love his artistic style i like what he does i like the choices he makes he really went all out for these issues he was talking about this a little bit online but like the amount of like group shots and i know for an artist that can take a lot um because it's a lot of people to draw it's a lot of uh different really specific details you kind of have to add because it's supposed to be a group shot it's supposed to be a lot of people quick shout out to uh soft serve in the background of the big fight scene <laughs> oh <laughs> I, love God, that. I didn't even see her wait what she, she, there is soft serve soft serve is in the fight uh, scene. oh my god soft serve is my 100 favorite do appreciate everything he's done and the amount of work that really went into this issue because i think um this story really needed big bold art and i really think he was able to deliver on it okay i have a screen rant article here with a quote from Teeny Howard. She informed her subscribers, uh, her Substack subscribers after this issue came out, quote, we're about to take Betsy on maybe her greatest ride yet and some very special people close to her are coming along too. Our Captain Britain isn't going away and I'm not done telling stories with her, end quote. But Screen Rant is very quick to note that this is not the same as having an official announcement or solicit because Marvel has given us neither. Yeah, I um, I also read that quote and I was, it was something that was been in my mind of like, yep, this is, uh, just gonna have to keep our eyes out and uh you know thoughts and keep and talking about it keep talking about it on twitter how great it is i <laughs> would love 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 betsy and rachel captain britain and ascani lesbian adventures across the multiverse like i would mm-hmm. be fuck you could charge me 6.99 a month for that issue if you need to to make the fucking cost work and i'll fucking be slapping my money down every goddamn month i would love that because of that because it's so fucking exciting and like i have trouble believing that we'll get it when they could just just as easily publish like a 17th volume of Wolverine and Deadpool jerking off all over
over each other. Okay, but I would actually really enjoy that issue of Deadpool and uh, Wolverine drinking off all over each other. I feel anyway. like that kind of <laughs> happened in like the last issue, maybe. I don't know. I gotta go back and check out uh, the again. We got a new Otherworld map. We did! And it's pretty banging. I must it say. is, yeah. So we we see that Blight Spoke took over the area that had previously been the fallen Dryador, and Roma took over Merlin's area. It was cute. It also felt like Hickman stopped sharing his account for whatever chart builder he uses. <laughs> and That's so Teeny had to draw this one out by hand. But it was very pretty. It had this, I like that it had this more, I don't want to say girly, but more kind of feminine, natural, kind of renaissance feel to it, as opposed to his, you know, very digital, linear graphic charts. It, it was a nice contrast, like moving in another direction and kind of re revisiting this idea in a what felt like a more teeny owned way it kind of makes me think of shogo's old scribbles when he'd converse with betsy mm. shogo who can talk now who can talk now yes i was just gonna say did anyone else feel like shogo was speaking a lot all of a sudden because they just didn't have I mean, multiple panels to drag that shit out like you have to you have to age these things up at some point he tried to talk in his normal scribbles but he scribbled them out and then started talking like normal. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it was cute. It was like, I can't keep doing that. That's good. I've been tired of babies. Too many babies. Just throw <laughs> them up magically. However, whatever, send them into a demon hell realm, pop them out again seven seconds later, seven years older. That's fine. Just I'm tired of Shogo being a baby. Let's move on. 